Welcome everybody to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the noted integralist Sean S. Bjorn Hargens. Join us for a really out-of-this-world journey into the field of exo-studies. Central to this field is the study of what is real and the importance of expanding our minds to encompass the high strangeness of reality. Exo implies something outside the confines of the contractive ego domains and the importance of leaving this limited worldview behind. Our conversation begins with the problematic or the mainstream worldview that drastically limits our perception and cognition. While reductionism has a certain power for sure, it needs to be balanced with a kind of mandatory complexification or a recognition of the inherent messiness of reality. Sean ties this into his notion of doubleness or a more integral approach to the study of phenomena. Inherent to the discussion is a critique of the constraints of materialism, its unconscious indoctrination in the virtual hypnosis that takes place up to age seven, and the invitation to open into the more expansive view of idealism, a world made of mind. The notion of ontological flooding is discussed, or putting everything on the table before you clear the table. A conversation then turns to Sean's key contribution of the ontology matrix, or the criteria we should employ to expand our understanding of what is real. Where does evidence fit into the picture, and what is the difference between legal and scientific evidence? What about too much ontological fluidity in the place of mental illness? Is anything off limits in such an open worldview, and is it possible to open too much and too fast? What's the role of body work in opening safely, and do psychedelics have a place? Quantum mechanics comes into the picture, along with the participatory nature of reality, which Sean explores with his unique mutual enactment hypothesis. In other words, how it is the phenomena, including beings like non-human intelligence and extraterrestrials, bring us into existence as much as we bring them into existence. Along the way, Sean talks about possible blind spots in Buddhism, thought-responsive domains, out of body and near death experiences, meta objects, the path of freedom and the path of fullness, and a wide array of mind bending topics. See for yourself why Sean is the leading voice in the world of exo studies and why you may want to blast off of this planet along with him. Hey, welcome everybody to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is a remarkable thinker and a good friend, Sean S. Bjorn Hargens. Um, I will, as usual, read abbreviated version of his bio, which will be fully linked onto this podcast. And then we're going to jump right into what I believe will be a really rich set of um, topics. So Sean Espion Hargren's PhD is a global leader in the application of integrative thinking to leader development and organizational design. For the last decade, he has worked with a variety of mainstream and progressive mission-driven companies. In 2011, he founded Meta Integral, a social impact network that supports change leaders around the world in applying integrative principles. In 2018, he founded the Exo Studies Institute, through which he is joined, joining others in pioneering the field of Exo Studies, which takes an integral approach to anomalous phenomena, including UFOs, ETs, etc. Sean combines a strong academic background in the philosophy of science and integrative meta theories with an open-hearted exploration of the mystery and multi-layered nature of reality. He has also had his fair share of first-person Exo experiences, which makes this exploration personally salient and meaningful. Um, the rest of it we'll have on the web website because it's so rich. And uh, Sean, really, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life to hang with us. I can't wait to drop into some of this stuff, man. Yeah, likewise. Uh, it's great to be here. I mean, a number of my good friends and some of my favorite authors have been guests on your podcast before. So it's a uh, really yeah. honor to be here uh, among all those great minds and hearts. So yeah, really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. Welcome to the clan, so to speak. So you, 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 
covered such an incredible scope with your work. I didn't even mention the enormous contributions you've made in, in topics like integral ecology and the like, but um, because I don't want to dilute the extraordinary contribution that you're making in this really original field of exo studies, with your kind permission, at least for this interview, I want to concentrate on the rich array of topics that that really, when I first read this paper, it was like WTF is this? This is like what is this guy talking about? It was it was such it was like it was like a cognitive yoga, right? You know, this paper will leave stretch marks on your mind. <laughs> and it was like I it was like I was assuming some you know warrior posture that that like I don't know if I can stretch my mind into this mudra, and, <laughs> and actually that type of stretch is like whoa there's something going on here. Um, so, with your kind of permission, let's run with this set of topics and start with what exactly is exo studies. Well, yeah, great. Um, just to kind of back up a little bit and give a, a frame that you've already mentioned, you know. My predominant kind of academic, intellectual, you know, applied practice um, orientation is in the context of integrative meta-theory, right? So I, you know, for 30 plus years, I've specialized in Ken Wilber's integral theory. In addition to that map and model, I've, I've become very familiar with Roy Bashkar's critical realism and Edgar Morin's um, complex thought. All three of these approaches are you know, big theories of reality that really make an effort to try and include everything in a non-reductive way. So I've, you know, I've applied this kind of thinking to ecology, you know, I have a massive, you know, 800 plus page co-authored book on that. And in that we identify like 200 distinct schools of environmental thinking or schools of scientific ecology. There's actually 80 schools of scientific ecology, right? You know, behavioral ecology, population ecology, community ecology, evolutionary ecology, and the list goes on, right? And so, so I really cut my teeth, you know, as a doctoral student on that, like trying to identify what's the true but partial elements of all of these different approaches in ecology and environmental thinking. Because if we're going to save the planet, we really need all hands on deck. You know, we, we need the, the insights and pearls of wisdom from all of these different schools of, of thought and application. And they don't know that each other exists. They don't, um, aren't familiar with each other's, you know, approaches. You know, they often ecologists are familiar with three to five different schools of ecology. They often would be surprised to realize there's actually, you know, north of 80, right? So, so I've always been interested in like, how do we get the biggest picture possible, whether it's ecology or psychology? You know, I taught a, um, a graduate program, a master's degree, a non-clinical degree at John F. Kennedy University in the Bay Area for a decade. And it was in integral psychology and students um, were taught like the 12 major schools of psychology, right? And the strengths and limitations and the particular insights that each of these major schools have, you know, so like cognitive, you know, science, you know, neuropsychology, depth psychology, you know, and behavioral psychology, right? And again, it's like the effort is like, okay, how do we really appreciate that each of these has developed a complex way of understanding reality? And they often have biases and they leave things out. But like, if we get the big picture, how do we bring that together and have a more complete understanding of the human being? And, you know, so, so I've been applying these big picture maps to, you know, a lot of kind of mainstream topics, if you will, for, for, you know, quite a while. And, 
And, you know, as a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, as a, you know, participant in A.H. Almas's Diamond Approach, you know, for 20 some years, you know, I've had a lot of meditative experiences. I've had, you know, some, you know, anomalous experiences during that process. Um, you know, and, and those traditions have ways of thinking about and talking about, you know, and understanding a lot of those, you know, generally it's kind of like, you know, get back to the breath or, you know, or like, you know, like, you know, just, you know, um, you know, see the emptiness of it and, you know, and, and, and move on, like, you know, nothing to see her folks, like keep moving, you know, and, you know, and I, I realized, you know, I, well, first off I had our first daughter, right? So I was, you know, with my wife, we had our first baby, um, Tatiana and my, you know, we were really serious practitioners. You know, we were entering into the six-year program that uh, Lama Paul and Droma and San Rafael had going, which was basically her approach to taking the three-year retreat curriculum, you know, traditional Tibetan Buddhist curriculum, and making it available for the layperson over like a six-year period, right? Which, you know, had, you know, basically four to five hours of meditation a day and, you know, mornings. And so, so we were in that, we, we were like, yes, we're doing this. And then we had a baby <laughs> and that kind of turned everything upside down. And, um, and so my ability to do formal retreat, uh, you know, Tibet Buddhist and the diamond approach stuff really fell off in that first year. And, you know, we were doing, you know, consistent retreats, you know, on a lot of weekends and several seven to 10 day retreats each year. And, and then all of a sudden that was gone, right? Like, you know, we tried bringing our little baby along, Interestingly, all the Buddhists in our Sangha, a lot of them got frustrated with a little toddler running around, even though Lama Paulden was very supportive of us bringing our, our child, like all these, you know, uh, Marin Buddhists were, were not having it, <laughs> so, which, which ironically was not very Buddhist of them, was it? <laughs> so, but, um, so then this kind of, this gap appeared in my spiritual life. Like, I, like I was I didn't have the formal structures and practices that I was doing. And all of a sudden, this kind of soul impulse that had been there for a while started kind of coming through more strongly. And I really wanted to ignore it. I was like, you know, because kind of like you reading the paper, it's like, this is not where I imagine myself, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, it's just like, you know, as a card carrying Buddhist, as, you know, card carrying integral theorist, you know, it's like, like, so getting into, you know, anything that kind of dealt with, you know, magic or non-human intelligences, or in this case, kind of the, the nature spirits. I felt this real draw to the nature spirits and, and, and working with, with those beings. And, and it was very confusing because, you know, it was very cognitive dissonance, you know, it was ego dystonic. You know, this is not who I understood myself to be, but I, I couldn't deny the impulse. Like there, there was something deeper in me that was wanting me to pay attention to this. So part of how I dealt with that, I went and did my, you know, some doctoral research in Bhutan. And I lived in Bhutan for six months. And why did I choose Bhutan? Well, because it's the only country where Vajrayana Buddhism is a national religion, right? And I really wanted to see what is it like to be in that context, you know, because I, as I said, you know, I was a very serious Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. And and Bhutan also has a very rich um approach to nature spirits and elemental beings. And, you know, so there's a lot of like kind of the shamanic and folkloric elements and, you know, and Tibetan Buddhism also just in how it's included the, the bone tradition, you know, has brought in a lot of that 
in various ways. And so I wanted to go study kind of integral ecology in Bhutan with a focus on the nature spirits and the elemental beings. Um, and so, so I did that and that was incredible. And, and so, you know, as I just kind of continued to make way for these interests and this kind of these soul impulses, I ended up reading this book called, you know, Hunt for the Skinwalker, right? It's a well-known book in kind of this space, describes this paranormal hotspot in, in Utah where, you know, all these crazy things have happened. And towards the end of that book, there's a quote that basically says something to the fact that, you know, because they've just, you know, they've surveyed all these crazy things that have happened on this ranch over many years, um, a lot of paranormal activities. And then the authors are kind of summarizing how, you know, it's been hard to make sense of all this, ph these phenomenon because, you know, the, the UFO researchers don't want to talk with the book, Bigfoot, you know, researchers don't want to talk with the ghost hunters don't want to talk with, you know, the, the parapsychology folks. And like, you basically have these like anomalous wars. And I immediately saw in that, like, oh my gosh, like we need an integrative approach, right? We need a meta integral approach to this. Like, you know, like there's just too much going on. There's so many different kinds of phenomenon. There's, you know, false memory, there's human distortion, you know, there's all kinds of cognitive biases. And yet at the end of the day, there still seems to be some kind of there there. So I got just really curious, and I'd, I'd had more anomalous experiences at this point, because um, my meditative experience started taking me more into what we might call the subtle realms. I was having more um, of those experiences, more encounters with, you know, different types of intelligences, non-human beings, you know, beyond just nature intelligences and the nature spirits, like I was having other kinds of encounters. And so... Out of that was born exo-studies, and, and exo-studies is basically a meta-integrative approach to anomalous realities that draws on, you know, the psychological literature, you know, the, you know, sociological, the scientific, and really takes this meta-disciplinary approach. And by meta-disciplinary, I mean, like, lots and lots and lots of disciplines. You know, as, as you know, in the appendix to this paper that we're talking about, I list, you know, 150 different fields, disciplines, or domains of knowledge acquisition that I feel need to be engaged and brought to bear on this topic. And so there's three main categories there. There's the philosophical and kind of, you know, academic literature. There's the UFO and space studies literature. And then there's the esoteric and paranormal literature. Um, and each of those have like 50 major kind of domains. So I wanted to create a framework, an integrative approach that allows us to have new kinds of conversations around these phenomenon. And so for the last few years, I've been developing distinctions, frameworks, models, um, and ways for us to think about all of these topics because we, we don't have a very sophisticated way of talking about it, thinking about it, evaluating it, you know, and, and discerning with, within the, the range of phenomena. So that is, in a long-winded way, that is how um, Exostudies kind of was born. Well, I love it. I love I love the, the context. That's really, really helpful. And there's so much in here already, Sean, that's, that's quite remarkable. I mean, one thing that comes to mind here is this um, notion of anomalous right off the bat and the hubris that's associated with that topic, like anomalous in relationship to what? And, right. and so it, it, what I love here that's so fantastic is one of my favorite definitions of meditation um, completely resonates with, with the narrative of, of what you're doing is habituation to openness. Right. And so what you're doing when you're talking about um, the integral approaches, the meta theory approaches, and fundamentally the, the complexification, the, the mandatory complexification, what it does 
is it really it really invites and then almost forces us to open the aperture of our awareness to encompass the majesty, the enormity, and the mystery of this world. And so, before because this is so foundation so foundational, and there's so much that um, I think we want to get into here. Let's start for just a few seconds with a term I think they use it in the philosophical traditions, um, the problematic. And by that, what I mean is why, in, in fact, what milieu is exo-studies situated in that makes exo-studies such a stretch? So let me just share what I think is along these lines. And, and because of your training in philosophy, I want to see where you run with this. But I think largely the problematic is we live in Aristotle's world. Yeah. And largely um, here, in particular, what I'm thinking of are his laws of thought, uh, in particular, the law of the excluded middle. Yeah. This is this is the, the notion that it has to be either this or that. Uh, I guess what's the other term? Boolean thinking or binary thinking? Black, white, yes, yeah. no, dead, alive. This kind of really simplified way of looking at world, at, at things. And so um, talk to us a little bit about why is this such a stretch for people in the West? And I think the notion of the problematic, what, what, what is this situated in that makes this a real reach? And if we don't have an open mind and heart when we start to explore these topics, as many hardcore academics um, um, do, the, the knee-jerk response is one of dismissal. It's like, ah, this just falls into something that's so far out of my arenas of certitude. And I, I think we could also talk a little bit here about some of the psychological developmental reasons why there's resistance. It's not just methodological, yep. it's not just ontological, as we'll get into these terms. I think there's a developmental issue here. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk, let's let's start with the problematic, and then let's talk about before we even get into the really juicy stuff, why the resistance to these types yeah. of views. Yeah. yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, what's at stake here is what is real. Right. And, you know, and how do we verify that? How do we interpret that? How do we understand that? How do we communicate that? And we're living in a period, a scientific, materialistic, reductionistic um, period where what is real has been trimmed down to the smallest possible set of, you know, <laughs> you know considerations in, than in the history of, of the human civilization, right? So we, we've done a good job of just trimming the, the what is real tree down to basically a stump. Um, and, and I love this phrase you used, um, mandatory complexification, because one of the things that I, I offer up is in complementarity to Occam's razor, which gets thrown around all the time in this kind of space. You know, it's like, you know, reduce it down to the most simplest explanation, and that's most likely the one to go with, right? And I, as a philosopher of science, like, I get it. I think there's a lot of power in Occam's razor, but it's also a razor, and you can cut yourself, right? You know, it's, 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 you know, it's not always the best tool in the toolbox. And, and so I offer up what I call Pollock's brush. And Pollock's brush is, you know, a, a nod to Jackson Pollock and his painting, Right, which at first glance looks just chaotic and all over the place, you know, splatters of paint and swirls and like there's no order to it. It's just chaos. But actually, they've done interesting analyses of it. And there is there are patterns. There is kind of a, a, a method to the madness. There is order within that chaos and multiplicity. And so my point is that sometimes we have we have to complexify before we can, you know, either prune down or, or kind of reframe or understand and this rush to kind of to the simplest explanation is is a 
it's not only bad science actually, um, but it's you know it's 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 not always useful, and and it also depends. And you're pointing out to a developmental you know considerations, which we'll get into, is what's considered the simple. This explanation is often dependent on the worldview from which, you know, you're operating from, you know, and what's considered simple in one worldview is not necessarily considered simple in another. So, so there's a lot of kind of context like that, that's important to keep in mind. And also, and this is where I think my training as a Buddhist and, and also in the diamond approach, one of the big messages I got from that is to be open to my experience, be open to what's arising in the stream of, of the body mind um, and, and to be curious Right. And, you know, and that's also to penetrate and see through. Right. It's to release and liberate, you know, and, you know, so all of that's there. And I just kept having weird experiences. <laughs> so so I was like, so I just, you know, as a, as a good Buddhist, I just remained open to it. Whereas maybe from a more scientific materialist perspective, I might have just ignored it, pushed it aside, you know, and the diamond approach is really big on just, you know, follow the thread of your experience. Right, not in a postmodern solipsistic sense, but as a way of penetrating down into the the depths of being, right, and and opening up to various fields of of, of boundless non-duality, right. So so I think as I started having more and more of these weird anomalous experiences, I just remained open to it and curious, right. And this is where Dustin Deperna, one of our friends. He has, you know, Ken Wilbur has, you know, wake up, you know, which is like, you know, kind of waking up to the, the liberated nature of mind, grow up, which is maturing psychologically and emotionally, um, you know, clean up, which is doing shadow work and so forth. Well, Dustin adds to that open up and open up is opening up to the, the mystery, to the manifold expressions on um, all the range of phenomenon in the subtle realms, all the different, you know, kind of um human powers and cities and possibilities of knowing and perception. So you point to this excluded middle, and I this is such a great place to start because in my study of of anomalous phenomenon, and I really, you know, I looked at everything. I looked at the poltergeist literature. I looked at the out-of-body experience literature. I looked at the ET, you know, experiencer literature. You know, I looked at the Bigfoot literature and, and so forth. So on. Like, like, you know, 20 different domains of anomalous experience. I just started diving into the literatures to try and understand, okay, what's going on? What are people reporting? What are the patterns? What are their dynamics? And one thing that just kept coming up is the phenomenon deconstructs the excluded middle logic of the Aristotelian worldview. And that's because the phenomenon consistently has what I call doubleness. It's simultaneously two or more qualities at the same time. And so this really messes with us. <laughs> you know, like, like, and this is why we tend to put it in the category of unreal, because it's it's not stably just one thing, right? And 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 this is where a lot of the paper gets into kind of ontological indeterminacy and ontological fluidity. Right, right now we're having like a major kind of, you know cultural transformation around gender binaries, right? And we're entering this gender fluid phase. Well, I'm promoting a ontologically fluid phase, right? Like I think, you know, we we need a more dynamic sense of what's real. Um, and, and obviously not all reals are equal or the same, you know, but, you know, we need to get out of this kind of, is it real, is it unreal? And, and where real is a very circumscript set of possibilities. Um, and, and so as I studied the doubleness of the phenomenon, and I'm using phenomenon here in the, the largest sense to refer to the full range of anomalous experiences and realities that people report. There seem to be three major liminal boundaries that get crossed um, through these phenomenon. 
And having an integral theory background, it was easy for me to kind of see that these three boundaries were essentially the I boundary, the we boundary, and the it boundary, right? So there's interpersonal boundaries. It's like, is it subject? Is it object? Is it mind? Is it matter? Is it inside? Is it outside? Is it self world? So a lot of these phenomena dissolve this boundary and it's, it's not clear kind of what side of that fence is it on. Um, and this is where synchronicity comes from because the experience of synchronicity is where somehow something that's happening on the outside of me is connected to the meaning making process that's happening inside of me. And so the boundary between inside and outside in an effect dissolved and you have an experience of synchronicity, right? You know, and, and then there's the interpersonal boundary, right? Where self other, me, you, us, them, human, alien, alive, dead, right? All these ways in which um, the self and the other get dissolved in these encounters and in these experiences. And, and so, and then you have forms of communion and connection, right? Where kind of a, a non-duality emerges where the boundary between self and other gets really fuzzy and sometimes entirely dissolves in these encounters and these experiences. And then lastly, you have, you know, the extra personal boundary, if you will, which is basically time and space gets all messed up. Um, uh, matter, energy, light, you know, is, you know, involved. And, and so you have past, present, and future. You, you know, you have non-local and local and, and bilocation. You have gross, subtle, causal happening. Like, so you get kind of all these ways of entanglement, of time and space being entangled in ways that we're not used to. Now, when something's referred to as high strangeness, what I've noticed, you know, in the literature, when people talk about high strangeness, it usually is, means that two or all three of these boundaries are being violated, right? Because the, the more of these boundaries that are violated, the weirder it seems to us. And there's this great phrase that Jeff Kripal, and I think Mike um, Clayland, who is kind of the owl synchronicity guy, um, he's, he has a couple of books that looks at just these amazing synchronicities, um, working with owls and UFOs and, um, ET beings. And, and they both, you know, talk about the weirder something is, the truer it is, mm -hmm. the more real it is. So this is interesting because this really kind of addresses and critiques the excluded middle because all, you know, kind of, you know, adult, you know, intellectual people tend to have the sense that the weirder it is, the more untrue it is, right? So, so you know, like if it's weird, it's untrue, right? And, and it kind of gets back to whole Occam's razor. But what's interesting is when you're trafficking in the anomalous, what you start to realize is that that frame of epistemological validation or even ontological verification really doesn't hold well. It doesn't work well. It doesn't allow you to get purchased just on reality, right? It doesn't help you really understand what is real because people always, when they're having these experiences, one of the first things they say to themselves or the friends they're sharing the experience with is, am I crazy? People just in a humble, authentic way feel that they're crazy or they're going crazy because these boundaries are being crossed, because consensual reality is being flipped upside down, because none of their friends get it. They don't know who to talk to. And so, so that's often a sign that in, in Wilbur's, you know, different notions of truth, that's truthfulness. They're being vulnerable. They're being honest. They're being authentic when they say that, right? So you really have to take seriously what they're sharing um, be, you know, and because, you know, these experiences just don't fit into the categories. And so we need a frame that can, can be, you know, work with the excluded middle and act 
actually allow phenomena to be contradictorily expressed simultaneously or concurrently. Yep. Uh, I, I wish I could jump through the screen and either give you a high five or a big hug. <laughs> this stuff is so effing awesome. I mean, so many things here, my friend. First of all, and this is this is a big deal. The the infatuation and um, and therefore, I think limitation of, of parsimony that we think that in, in, the, in the spirit of Occam's razor, the more parsimonious the explanation, the more true it is. But I love this notion of, of, of Pollock's brush. I mean, that is a stroke of genius that in order to really um, pay homage to the majesty, the mystery, the ineffability of reality, we have to blow these doors wide open. And, and what I see is, is a, a really big blind spot in the scientific academic community, the high priests, where the, the arbiters of truth, right, is the, the colossal um, near enemy of articulation, the brilliance of the shining intellectual mind, the near enemy of articulation is reification. Yeah. And we reify, again, for developmental reasons. And so that's why I think the, the whole notion of developmental strategies around this and how I think there's a, a very powerful egoic subconscious impulse here not to see the world in this way, because ego by definition shrink wraps the, the beauty and the complexity of reality as, as a survival type of mechanism. So I wanted to just put an exclamation point on that. The other thing is this beautiful notion of liminality, because as you know, I, I roll in, in the nocturnal meditation right. world. And over the last yeah. couple of years, I've, I've, I've kind of retrofitted a practice that originally, I, like many people, I hopscotched over to get to the main goodies of lucid dreaming, dream yoga. And this is um, a term coined by Jennifer Dumper that I really like, the idea of liminal dreaming, which is this hypnagogic, mm. hypnopopic space that originally everybody, me included, you skip over it to get to the right. goodie. And I realized this notion of liminality is amazing because very briefly in the dream arena, boy, if, if you pay attention to it, this is where you can see the narratives fall apart. This is where you can see the ego dissolve. Yeah. And so this notion of liminality applies the liminal principle is what applies here, that we can use these particular dimensions to, to realize that the reality does not have to abide by our predispositions and by our, our hopes and aspirations. So the other thing that, that, that I want to put an exclamation point on here is a double, double entendre intended is I see your work as a kind of intellectual solvent. And I mean this intentionally, that what it does is it puts reality into solution it dissolves wow. kind of like an intellectual acid, LSD or whatever, that really dissolves these reified boundaries that are largely ego-based, wow. self-serving for ego, um, for egos. Uh, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll almost say um, biological, psychological imperative. And that's why I think, again, that's why there's such resistance. That's why there's such a rub. Because you, you mentioned this, it's like the transition from Ptolemaic worldview, right, into a, a Copernican worldview. We're going through exactly this opening. Yeah. And the opening, these kind of growing pains are what we come up against. And so if we have the right view, that when you're coming up, the, the weirder it is, what a great line, the weirder it is, the truer it is. If we can just maintain that that view when we go into these things, then we start to feel the stretch. We, fall, we start to feel the asana. We lean into it. And what do we do? Just like in yoga, this mental yoga, we pause, we breathe, we allow it to work on us, and we realize that's that's the rub that creates the pearl, right? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, you know, so like in this context, you know, because I'm really interested, like, what would an integrative meta science look like 
that can actually, you know, tackle some of these phenomenon and and make discernments and discriminations and and weigh in epistemologically, ontologically, methodologically, right? You know, it's like I I really want like a sophisticated engagement with all of this. And so because of the doubleness, the liminality that exists at the core of so many of these phenomenon, I've been developing what I call double methods, like methods that work in, in two directions and that you either do both at the same time or you do them, you know, um, sequentially. Um, you know, so a good example we've already given is, you know, if you're going to use Occam's razor, you also have to use Pollock's brush, right? You know, because there's different moments where you might use either one of them. And, and sometimes we have to complexify it before we can simplify it. Um, and, 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 and another is, you know, phenomenological bracketing is a really big thing in our, you know, post-Kantian reality. And, you know, and it's like this, basically this idea that you can't really say anything about the noumenon. You can't say anything about the thing in itself. You can't say, you can't make any strong ontological claims about reality. All we can talk about are the categories of mind or embodiment through which said reality is filtered through. And, but it's always, you're always cut off from the thing in itself. You're always a certain distance from it. And, you know, and you have to be really careful if you want to make any bold ontological claim. Well, you know, that's dominated Western intellectual, you know, enterprises for, you know, way too long. (laughs) It's like, and again, like there's a lot to be said, like they, Thank you, Kant. You know, like you really, you know, you brought us up to a whole new level. And, you know, but now we're, we're ready to move on. And, and part of that moving on is there's this big shift in a number of areas, which is, you know, generally referred to as the ontological turn, right? You know, in philosophy and anthropology and, um, you know, where there's a recognition that we've been so afraid to make any kind of strong or bold ontological claim for so long that our sense of how to talk about the ontological has really gone anemic, right? And, and, and these authors and theorists and researchers are basically saying, we actually can say more about the nature of reality than what Kant has led us to believe. And so they've developed a number of critiques and frameworks of doing that. So I pair phenomenological bracketing, you know, which is, you know, one of the main forms of methodology used in, you know, qualitative research methods and, you know, dissertations across the country, right? Everyone tends to, you know, if you're doing a qualitative study, it usually involves phenomenology or phenomenological bracketing in one way or another. I combine that with what, you know, Jack Hunter, who's based in the UK, and he's developed what he calls ontological flooding. Mm. And this is like a form of what I also think of as like ontological generosity, similar to kind of Pollock's brush. It's like, let's just get everything on the table, right? Let's just, you know, let's start there and then start determining what needs to come off the table opposed to trying to just put one thing on the table and say, well, that's it. And so ontological flooding is where you open up. And again, here comes that open up and and that abiding in the possibilities. You open up to, in particular, the claims that people were making about their experience of reality, right? And so this really grew out of the anthropological space where for so long, anthropologists have just smiled and winked when the the locals have, you know, described their encounters with these spirit beings or this kind of phenomenon. And it's kind of like, well, us scientific Westerners, we know better. Like, that's just fantasy and myth. And like, there's just a primitive mindset and all that. Well, we're really moving away from that, finally. Um, and, and there's this recognition that the experiencer right? The local 
when they're describing reality, if they're doing so authentically and sincerely, you know, and this applies to people who have done psychedelics or ayahuasca, like when they're describing those realities, we really should start from a place of, of openness to the possibilities that what they're describing actually has purchased on reality, that it actually is somehow a window into the nature of reality in some way. It doesn't mean that everything they say is like truthful or the actual structure of reality, but it's starting from this place of generosity and, and f opening up and flooding the ontological possibilities and starting from that place. And so combining phenomenological bracketing with ontological flooding is like a paradoxical move. So I've been developing a number of double methods where mm -hmm. if you're going to turn left, you have to also turn right, right? Because the nature of this, these phenomenon are so paradoxical, counterintuitive, that if you're only turning left, you're going to really miss it. You, you need both moves in order to help bring the complexity and the mystery of the phenomenon into relief. Right. And out of the object oriented um, ontologists, they talk about withdrawal, right? That objects are withdrawn, right? An object doesn't reveal its fullness to us in any given encounter with it. And I find this a very powerful concept that reality is withdrawn, right? And, and Kripal has this great phrase in his new book, Superhumanities decolonize reality. We have to decolonize reality, we have to open it up. That's bloody fantastic. And I, God, there's so much here. This is like, I'm bursting, my friend. <laughs> One thing that that this is um, maybe the academic elephant in the room, and and I saw this in your paper as well. That that everything is seems to me seems to be circumambulating this particular topic, and then I think that again, in, in this notion that your work is is a kind of a solvent. One of the things that that a, cl a closer reading of your work does to me is a kind of stealth help. Is it actually dissolves this mainstream problematic view of materialism. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about almost begs an idealistic reality because fundamentally so much is solved once you break out of the restrictive parameters of materialism and fundamentally take a really hard look. The only thing we ever really have, Sean, is experience. I mean, that is it. It's not experience of it's experience as that's all we have is experience. Right. And so what I see here that is just so bloody um, interesting here, this kind of stealth help in your work, is that it's a very skillful broadside attack on the high priest view of materialism. Because within yeah. that view, that's where this stuff just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But if you blow out into an idealistic world, it's all mind. And then of course, what is that mind? And it's manifest, released, yeah. various manifestation. Now, all of a sudden, we have some real explanatory power because we're no longer reductive. We're elevation. Instead of reductionism, my languaging is elevationism. It's we're yeah. elevating everything into this idealistic view that all of a sudden now, whoa, there's a lot of room at this table. We can invite all these things. And, and for me, yeah. and this is what got me so interested in this, and you know this as a Buddhist, in, in the realm of Tibetan Buddhism, Gurus, Yidams, Dakas, Akinis, Dharmapalas. We have all these, um, well, let's start with, with uh, samsaric beings and the Pure Land traditions. Right. At least 27 realms of samsaric existence, each right. one <laughs> sub subdivided into how many different gradations. Then you have the trans-samsaric dimensions 
all the, the, the arrays of non-human intelligences, the levels of reality that are just as real or unreal as this. Right. So for me, when I was studying all this stuff, and again, like you, I start to experience the Dharmapalas. I start to experience the, the Yirams, Dakinis. They, they appear to me in my dreams. They appear to me in visions. Yeah. If I don't have the right view, it's just like you said earlier, am I going crazy here? Or am I actually coming up against this inculcated view that really, let me, let me throw this in and I'll pause because I get so excited. Up until age seven, right? We're basically in a, we're living in a theta, theta bandwidth of brain activity. This is the, the bandwidth that's prim primarily associated with hypnosis. So we are literally up until age seven hypnotized to see the world in this way because we really don't have a choice. And then so what's taking place here is, is a radical and sometimes painful process of dehypnosis, picking yeah. up from this reified Aristotelian way. And I'm harping on this because this is a really big deal. You can't solve a problem you don't even know you have. Right. And so if we're involved in living in this, in Aristotle's world, um, welcome to samsara, right? Welcome to, to what we're doing to the, uh, uh, the world. Welcome to uh, the ecological crisis. Welcome to everything that's happening in the world now. So we'll come, we'll come back to close on this later, how this ties into your work in ecology, that this has tremendous, not only explanatory power, but vast practicality and applicability. So, yeah. Well, I love, you know, this point you're making about up until we're seven, you know, we're predominantly in a theta brain state. And, and not only is that, you know, hypnosis, that's the imaginal realm, right? That, you know, and, and it's, and this is why, you know, a lot of Buddhist practitioners, when they've been sitting on the cushion for a number of years and they start to stabilize theta brain states, they often, well, not often, but sometimes they start having anomalous experiences. Like I've talked to several, you know, hardcore Vipassana practitioners who started having experiences of great aliens showing up in their meditations. And, and it's because, I mean, there's a lot of ways to think about or talk about that. Um, but it, in part, I think it's because they're they're back in the theta, and the theta opens up to the imaginal, and it opens up to these other realms, these other um, domains of reality that start you know bleeding in and through. And then we often don't know what to do with that, and we go to our Buddhist you know teacher, and they're just like you know just you know ignore it, you know. Well, yeah, that we can ignore it. I mean, that there's good reasons to ignore it, particularly if there's certain benchmarks you're trying to hit on, on the path to awakening. But if we're trying to open up to reality, maybe we shouldn't ignore it. Maybe we should stop and talk to that being and just kind of find out, you know, why are you here? What are you doing? What's going on? Right. You know, and and so, you know, I think there's also this view that because we're in this highly rational, scientific, materialist, reductionist culture, that dreams are are unreal, fantasy is unreal, the imagination's unreal, and, and the subtle, anything associated with the subtle is unreal. But if you look at the traditions, if you look at the contemplative traditions, they say the opposite. Exactly. This reality that we call real is the most unreal of all the possible modes we can be in. The subtle realm is more real than this real, but it's not as real as the causal realm. And it's not as, you know, like, and so, so it's kind of like we have it all bass backwards, you know? Exactly. So, and, and this is where I love, and you're right, it's, this is all about idealism, you know, predominantly. And this is why I love Bernardo Castro's work, who I know you've talked with on the show. And, um, you know, and, and I think his work's so important because he's, he's helping give people like me uh, a more sophisticated set of 
terms to talk about the validity of idealism in a scientific modern culture. Um, and this is where Jeff Kripal's phrase, the anomalous is a non-dual sign. Now, so this really grabbed my attention. I was like, holy, so I'm like, what is he talking, you know, like, because, you know, I've spent so long kind of focus on Tibetan Buddhist tradition and kind of non-duality and, and just the frames and practices that, you know, put you in that direction with Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And, and I don't normally come across thinkers that relate to anomalous experience as having anything to do with non-duality, right? Like, it's kind of like, the, never the two shall meet, you know, and, and, and and yet he's saying these are windows, these anomalous experiences because of the doubleness, because they're attacking that excluded middle. And they're saying, hey, hey you have to include this middle, right? You, know, you have to include the, this range of possibilities that these are all signs. They're like fingers pointing to the non-dual nature of reality, right? They're, they're reminders. These anomalous experiences are a reminder of the unified field out of which all phenomenon arises. And this is partly why... In high strange encounters where people have a lot of weird experiences kind of clumped together in a short period of time. It's, it's in a sense, it's just because they're tapping into just total non-dual where it's all mixed together like in a blender, right? <laughs> but it's, it's coming out all weird and they just can't get any handlebars, right, to make sense of it, right? So when I started to realize anomalous experience can actually be a, an entry point into the non-dual nature of of mind itself, of phenomenon, right, of, of clear light, like that started to get really interesting to me because then it was like I was able to start to bring these two worlds together. Um, and, you know, so I talk a lot about there's the path of freedom, which is generally the path of like waking up, liberation, maya, looking through it, penetrating, you know, and then there's the path of fullness, right, which is embracing, investigating, exploring, opening up, dancing with, dialoguing with, all of these phenomenon, not at the expense of freedom, because one thing that's really surprised me as I've worked in these communities around anomalous experience, there's a lot more sophisticated understanding of non-duality than I would have ever imagined. Like I was, you know, I was a Buddhist snob for the longest time, you know, like Tibetan Buddhist is the greatest cultural contribution to global humanity ever. It has so many practices, so many maps. It's so sophisticated, which I think all of that's by and large true, right? And and so I just was like thumbing my nose at the anomalous experiencers and just going, well, you, you know, interesting, but that's not really where reality is. When that started to get turned on its head in my own life, in my own direct experience, and I was like scrambling to kind of find my Buddhist handlebars to kind of get some grounding and what, you know, how do I make sense of all of this? I started to realize that there is profound non-dual teachings that come out of this space. And we've either ignored it or we've not found a way to be in deeper relationship to those um, currents of, of practice and consideration that exist in some of those communities. Yeah, just unbelievable. I wanted to share a quote, and I, I like to attribute things. I don't remember who said this, but I got this the following statement from Swami Sarvapiyananda, the wonderful Advaita Vedanta teacher, where in relationship to this, idealistic thing, because I think, again, this is, if we can make the transition with the help of people like Bernardo Castro and Kashmir Shaivism and all the great, wonderful non-dual traditions, then all of a sudden what, what becomes so highly problematic becomes not only um, tenable, but inevitable. Wow. You're finally really opening up and saying, oh my gosh, within this larger worldview, not only is this welcome, this is this is almost mandatory in a certain sense, but what this, this, um, um, 
unattributed Advaita Vedanta master said is an object is that which objects to consciousness. <laughs> it's a really interesting thing to oh. say, right? An object is that which objects to consciousness. And so therefore, if we understand that really, again, what, what several things that are so deeply implicated in your work that we can now start turning towards is not only like what is real, what is an object, and what constitutes evidence. So yeah. let's let's take this anywhere you want to take it. Um, again, you, you have so much to share here. Um, some of the things I had in mind is, that, well, I think one of the richest contributions in, in your work is your um, ontology matrix. This is a, an extraordinary contribution. And so it, I want to just basically let you run with whatever is speaking through you right now, because you're, you're pinging on so many extraordinary, compelling things. But uh, maybe we can go in that direction, or if there's something else yeah. that comes to your mind, just run with it. Yeah. So, you know, I spend a, a number of pages in the article kind of trying to come to terms with this whole notion of what's real, what's evidence, right? And and one distinction that I found useful, and I think there's more to do here, but I think it's a it's a good starting point, is that there's you know scientific evidence and there's um, legal evidence, um, and and those are very different. And so, you know, when you look at the different kinds of evidence associated with legal evidence and with scientific evidence, when you're dealing with anomalous phenomenon, by and large, you tick all the boxes on legal evidence, meaning that you know if you if the, a court case was happening, you would likely win the court case based on the kinds of evidence you were able to admit into the the considerations, right? Like so, we we have a because you here's another one of these double doubleness things. You have a lot of people saying there's no evidence for any of this, right? No evidence, and then you have the people who you know are familiar with these phenomenon saying, no, there's a lot of evidence. There's tons of evidence. There's so much evidence. So I often was like, why, why is this happening? Why do we have one group saying no evidence and another group saying lots of evidence? I'm like, okay, they must not be talking about the same thing. They're not talking about this. They're, they're using the word evidence in different ways, right? You know, as well as different worldviews will allow, you know, different things to be evidence. So that's also another developmental consideration. Um, and, and so, so I realized, you know, one of the distinctions is that there's a ton of legal evidence for these phenomena. Um, there's there's less scientific evidence, but there still is enough scientific evidence to at least say we have to do some more investigation here, right? So so it's not that there's no scientific evidence; it's just there's no slam dunk scientific evidence, um, in, in a sense. Um, though you know, I think even that can be challenged. But just in terms of you know, like kind of what Bernardo's doing. It's like you have to kind of, to an extent, work within, you know, the the scientific paradigm uh, to try and get some traction, right? And this is what Roy Bashkar would call an imminent critique. You learn how to critique that approach on its own terms, right? Using its own distinctions, using its own categories of of what's real and not real. And, and you try and kind of explode it from within because it's never going to happen from trying to bombard it from the outside by out-contextualizing it. Like, like that just isn't generally how progress in scientific considerations works, right? And this is kind of Kuhn's whole point in a sense. Um, and so so I think there's a lot of different way. And, and then the other thing is we need new forms of validity, right? Like even like with like developmental psychology, right? If we look at, you know, the sense completion test, 
and you know, and the Lectica system both essentially come out of Harvard. And they're both statistically validated measures of evaluating one's level of development in consciousness or one's worldview, you know, one's set of values and beliefs and how that unfolds chronologically over time and complexifies. But they both have different kinds of validity that they draw on to validate their claims scientifically. They don't both psychometrics don't use the exact same types of validity, right? So we can say they're both true. They both are describing the reality of the mind and how it complexifies under certain conditions and certain circumstances. But, you know, they're, they're maybe using a few of the same kinds of validity, but they're also using different kinds of validity. So there's multiple kinds of validity that go into substantiating the scientific truth of those models and methods. So likewise, we have to move away from the simplistic idea that there's kind of one kind of validity that makes something true. And so when you look at the evidence for anomalous phenomena, there's a lot of evidence, but in little pockets. And if you bring all those little things together, you kind of get this meta validity, right? So, so you get this kind of emergent validity that I think we have to figure out how to describe that better and, and be more systematic in that. So in this context, I really... I offer that we move from like objective knowledge, right, to valid knowledge. And this really comes from Wilbur's notion of broad empiricism. That, and this applies to like meditators, right? It's like the broad, Wilbur's broad empirical frame is there's um, an injunction or a practice or something you do. Yep. Then there's data that comes from doing that. And then you compare notes with other people who have done it and who are so-called subject matter experts. So if it's looking through a, a microscope at a Petri dish and seeing something, you, all the, you get everyone to look through the microscope and see it and write down and say, is this what you're seeing? This is what I'm seeing? Like, and then that's, like, that's scientific knowledge. That's valid knowledge. But the same is true for meditators. Do, do the Vajrasattva practice for nine months right? And then see what happens, right? And then compare the results of that practice with other people who have done it, you know, the purification process for nine months, right? And, and so we have to move towards valid knowledge and away from scientific knowledge, because there's valid knowledge psychologically, interpersonally, culturally, scientifically. I think valid knowledge is a much more robust um, context from which to understand whether something's real or true, right? Because it allows us to get out of the reductionism that what's true or real is just objective, right? And we actually know that that's not the case. Uh, Bernardo Castro and others kind of keep reminding us of that. So, so by moving towards valid knowledge and having a way of validating knowledge, now we can really start to compare notes and talk about things. So I introduced this notion of a ontological matrix, which has kind of three um, spectrums that are combined. There's the ontological station spectrum, um, which is basically talking about realms, you know, and this include like subjective, intersubjective, objective. So each of these are like kind of, you know, different stations, if you will. And then we have the ontological sovereignty spectrum, which is basically about free will. Do these beings that are encountered, are they non-autonomous, semi-autonomous or autonomous? Like to what extent do they have free will? And then the third one is the ontological substance spectrum. This is referring to the density or the kind of what are they made out of, right? So there's gross physical bodies, biological bodies in effect, subtle energetic bodies, and then causal light bodies, 
right? And so what's interesting about each of these spectrums, I initially introduced them as on a, a real to unreal continuum, right? Where one side of the spectrum is considered real and the other side is unreal. So with the ontological station spectrum, objective is real and subjective is unreal. With ontological sovereignty, being autonomous is real, being non-autonomous is unreal, right? Or asleep or kind of non-existent. In the, the substance spectrum, being gross physical biological bodies is real and being a causal light body is most unreal, right? So it's interesting that in our kind of current cultural milieu, we've taken each of these spectrums and we've identified one pole of it as being, you know, the real, where the real action is. And then everything else along the spectrum is just decreasing orders of unrealness. And I suggest that actually it's a real, real continuum. They're just different kinds of real. And so we need more, you know, distinctions to talk about what's real because it's not helpful to say our dreams aren't real. It's not helpful to say that encounter with a Dakini where I got information about the lineage is unreal, right? It's, it's like, it's like, it's a different kind of real. It might not be biological, physical real, right? But it's, it's something, right? There's, there's, there's purchase on reality. There's insight. There's, you know, it's, there's connections. Um, and so then I put this together in a little matrix and talk about different types of beings. And this is where I think it gets really interesting. Different types of beings, whether they're a tupa or, a, you know, just a, a standard thought form or a dream figure, they have the, a lot of them have the ability to move across the points on these spectrums, right? So they have ontological fluidity, whereas we tend to think of ourselves as being just, you know, waking, rational, physical beings. But every night we dream and every night we go out of body, right? And so we're, we're existing in other realms and other dimensions every 24-hour cycle, in effect, right? But we tend to then reduce our realness to just what we consciously remember. And this is why so many of the traditions, be they the cult traditions or the contemplative traditions, are about reclaiming our ability to stay conscious and recall our experiences in these other domains, in these other states of consciousness. So lucid dreaming or out-of-body travel or you know being awake during deep dreamless sleep, right? It's about increasing the capacity of consciousness for you to stay awake while you're experiencing all these other phenomena. And when you do that, you start to realize those other experiences are just as real and sometimes more real than our waking state. But if all we are is conscious during our waking rational state, then it's no surprise that we would mistake this for real. And this is why the traditions want us to wake up and bring our consciousness and conscious recall into these other modes of experience, because then we are conscious beings in those contexts. Oh my gosh, there's there's so much here. I mean, the last thing really that we could riff on a little bit again in, in, in this notion of expanding is the incredibly insidious pathology of wake centricity. Right. Any yeah. way we can glean reality is from the most dominant state of consciousness, which is the wake-centric consciousness, completely dismissive yeah. in a scientistic way. So this ties into what you're talking about earlier, the transition from ob so-called objective, quote-unquote, big-time, yeah. objective scientific knowledge to valid knowledge. That's one way to talk about the pathology of scientism, the yeah. tremendous nobility in the scientific method. Yeah. But when it goes south, it goes south in a colossal way. And so, you know, this dismissive um, characteristic 
not again, it, this happens along so many different fronts, not only if, if in the ontological spectrum's point of view, but this wake centric point of view. If you can't experience it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And the hubris that, you know, it's in a certain way, uh, they wouldn't, um, other scientists, the religious people wouldn't look through Galileo's telescopes. Mm-hmm. Well, in a very real way, it's a converse problem. Right. Now they won't look through our telescope, so to speak. <laughs> right. so what right. they experience, they dismiss. That's yeah. classic scientism. Two things come to mind here. One is, and these are these are big topics. One is the the issue of the first of all the invitation of ontological fluidity. But how about let's let's talk briefly about the near enemy of ontological fluidity, i.e., psychosis. Because if if you go too far in the other extreme, there is, as you know, in the Yogacara tradition, parikalpati, the the truly imaginary nature. So on one level, you open, you open, you open, but then do you slide into a completely radical relativistic view where there's no grounding? I mean, is, again, that's an open question. Is that okay? Can you yeah. actually float in all that? So there, is there a near enemy of too much fluidity, i.e. mental disease? And right. then secondly, before I forget, Sean, is when I was reading your, your ontology matrix thing, have you considered the possibility of yet another vector that I didn't hear you mention, which is the temporal vector? So not only do you have substance sovereignty um, and, and, and the third Agent. one, exactly. So you, how about the, 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 um, the temporality of it? We take a mountain to be a heck of a lot more real than the morning mist. Right. And yeah. so have you, have you thought about introducing mm-hmm. that temporal vector into it to further complexify in the best sense of that word? Yeah. To, to, to bring that aspect into um what is actually real and what isn't. So a couple of things here, the ontological fluidity as a pathology, and then the, perhaps the introduction, if it's already didn't see it, of temporality. Yeah. Great ad. Yeah, I think that's a real important consideration. And, and it does highlight that predominantly the ontological matrix as it's currently presented is very spatial, right? And I think it needs to include the, the temporal um, element aspect as well. So, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, too much fluidity is as problematic as too much rigidity, right? But if we think about psychosis, like, how can we not look at our current mainstream culture and not say it's psychotic, yeah. right? In its rational, wakeful, centric orientation, like, it, that is a form of psychosis, um, you know, that we then take as just basic consensual reality. And part of it is because it's so rigid, right? So, yeah, like, too rigid, too fluid, problematic, absolutely. But here's the thing, it's like, we're so rigid that any fluidity we label psychotic, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and so it's like, we, we have no appetite, no capacity to appreciate any amount of fluidity without feeling so threatened by it, feeling it's so unreal, it's so problematic, it's so fantasy prone, it's so this, it's that, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's like, I think we have a lot of room for um, fluidity before we get to psychosis. But then there's also the fact that if you look like um, Stan Groff's work on spiritual emergencies, it seems that a lot of psychosis um, involves actually interacting with some very real beings, right? And it, and it's a mixture of fantasy and 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 real dimensions and beings and phenomenon. But because we're predominantly clinically oriented to the psychotic elements of it. We just assume all of it is fantasy, right? So, so I would suggest that it's like, okay, we have the rigid rational conscious here, 
Then you have kind of the subtle realm experiences that a lot of, you know, contemplative practitioners and occult practitioners experience. It's not psychotic. And then you have psychotic experiences. That's kind of a mixture of that. But even there, you know, it's like when my dad was in the process of dying, he started seeing beings in the room. Right. And, and, and they were kind of like gremlin like beings. They were kind of like what might be called lower astral beings. Like they weren't really friendly. Um, and it was just dismissed as, you know, just, you know, he's just making it up. It's just fancy. And yeah, maybe that is true. I'm not saying that's not a possibility. I'm saying it's an absolute possibility, but I'm also saying it's, it's also an absolute possibility that he was having some form of second sight, third eye opening. He was in between the worlds um, and he was starting to perceive other beings that were overlapping with his dimension and that was a real phenomenon right you know and so and and also what's interesting in so much of this is the out-of-body experience seems to be crucial mm -hmm. for access to these other realms and whether that's different forms of lucid dreaming or out-of-body experience there's something about us either through a trigger event like a car accident a medical emergency where we're kind of basically flung out of our body or we take up a practice that enables us to consciously and meticulously develop the ability to differentiate one or more of our subtle bodies from our physical body. And it doesn't always mean that you go out of body. You can just uh, identify and connect with that body within you in a sense. Um, but that there's something about connecting with the out of body mode with these different subtle bodies that enables us to be in the imaginal spaces and probably connected to the theta state. Um, and which also gets to the research that I'm starting to do that maybe we can talk about. But I, I find it very interesting when I look at a lot of anomalous reports of anomalous experience, so often I find a trigger event of an out-of-body experience that occurs um, bef often before these experiences start happening. Um, and, and, or even in, in the manuals of psychic development, right? And, you know, so, so there's something about developing access to our, what's called our esoteric anatomy and, and the subtle bodies and the associated inner senses of those bodies that opens up a lot of these perceptions and experiences. And so it's like psychedelics, I think, are like, you know, a quick way to get into one of our subtle bodies. And the more sophisticated systems, you know, posit between five and nine subtle bodies, Right. You know, and so you have the tri-body doctrine, you know, of, of Hinduism and Buddhism, but then you have the koshas, which is five, but then the koshas even expand out to you know, additional bodies associated with, you know, some of the koshas. So like there's a, you know, very sophisticated um, mappings and, you know, they don't all agree. The Tibetans have five chakras. The Hindus have not a seven. Right. So how is it the Tibetans, you know, because they're very sophisticated when it comes to these types of things. So do they just miss a few of the chakras? You know, like, do they just not see them? No, because these are, these domains are ontologically fluid. They're enacted. They're generated through practices, through intention, through focus, through different ways of working with these energies. It's, so they're cutting the pie differently, right? So the seven chakra system of the Hindu yoga traditions and the five chakra system of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition are both true. They don't have to line up, right? Because And that need for them to line up exposes our scientific materialism, that we think there has to be a one-to-one -one object. No, when you're dealing in these realms, these are thought-responsive domains. And so, again, different practices will enact and create a five-chakra system that culturally 
gets um, laid down like morphic grooves, or morphic fields, which is different than the seven chakra system of the Hindus, right? And so you have to have what Simon Cox calls a multinatural somatic pluralism, right? So oh, there's a mouth. Awesome. Well, awesome. <laughs> multinatural? Say, say the word. Again. Yeah, and by that, by multinatural, he means that they're, they're, the five body system and the seven body system are both objectively true. They're 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 multinational in that they're they're real. These are real different bodies. So it's not like they're subjective fantasies or projections. They're real, but there's a pluralism of of somatic expression. Different forms of embodiment and different cultures and traditions will enact and 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 reify and 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 th those kinds of distinctions. This is great. One thing that came to mind here. <clears throat> um... Sean, it's so interesting. You're talking about OBEs, <clears throat> out-of-body experiences, being crucial for, for these experiences. I would, I, I would posit that the reason for that is that the reducing valve is temporarily taken off. I mean, we, yes. we yeah, exactly. are a localization of space-time. We shrink yeah. the infinity of the cosmos. And, and Bernardo, our, our, our mutual acquaintance friend, talks about this, that if we were – I mean, it, it's, it's a biological – survival imperative. If if we, in an untrained way, saw reality as it is, I love his terminology here, we would dissolve into an entropic soup. Too <laughs> big. Parenthetically, maybe we can back, come back to this later. Honestly, I think this is exactly what happens when we die. We dissolve into that entropic soup, and unless our minds and hearts are big enough to open into the infinity of reality, we contract in literal ultimate self-defense away from that infinity. And I think I would actually argue that that is one definition of what enlightenment could actually be, is the capacity to, in fact, dissolve into solution, become quite literally nothing, everything, one with the cosmos. That's the awakened state. But I think it has to do with um, also like stories like Eben Alexander and why he was shredded by people and why... And, uh, uh, Bernardo came to his defense that he had these um, amazing, outrageous experiences where he was fundamentally brain dead. You can't yeah. deny the literature. And, and it's almost an inverse correlation, right? The, the, the more the brain, the reducing brain activity, the more that is taken down, the more you actually open it up. And so yeah. what does that do to the materialistic view? It should be the other way around. Exactly. Basically, yeah. if the materialistic view is true, there's no way. It should be the other way. There should be more brain activity. There's less brain activity, and that's what you see yeah. when you open. So I think that's just so spot on. The, the other thing I wanted to ping in your direction, because we're circumambulating some topics that I think are so key, and this is another really massive contribution in your paper, not that we're done with the ontology matrix. I think it's going <laughs> to do everything we're doing. But not yeah. only the notion of enactment, maybe we can define that, but your really wonderful notion of mutual enactment hypothesis. So maybe talk to our listeners um, about enactment, what that really is, and then in particular, this notion of mutual enactment, because I think that is another really spot-on contribution in your work. Right. Yeah, so first I'll respond to a couple of things you said, and then I'll work my way to enactment. Yeah, so it's interesting when people have out-of-body experiences, it's not uncommon for someone to describe 360 vision, right? So they're out of the body and they can see 360 simultaneously around them, okay? As, as if they're looking with their own physical eyes. 
So what that suggests, given that it happens a lot, is that once we're no longer being filtered through the biological brain vision system, our consciousness actually has the ability to see in all directions simultaneously, right? And so there's something about being in a, the biological body that's a filtering system in and of itself that reduces and filters consciousness in a particular way. And so when we get out of that kind of straitjacket, a lot more is possible. We also see this with blind people who are, are genitally blind. They're born blind. They learn to do out-of-body travel and experiences, and they can see. They have vision, right? And so there's a whole book on this. There's been research on this. Like So blind people can see when they're out-of-body. So their consciousness has the ability to see but when it's being filtered through the, the eyes that, for whatever reason, are blind, they're not able to see, right? So, so there's a lot of interesting things like that that are, you know, really kind of raise some big questions for scientific materialism. And, and you're right, like there, when you're in your astral body, by whatever name, um, there's no time and there's no space, right? You, past, present, future are available. You can go anywhere you want with just thinking of it. It's a very thought-responsive, conscious-responsive space. Our, our materialistic gross realm is not very thought responsive. It's like everything's in slow motion, right? So when we get out of that, then it's a very dynamic space, right? And it's, it's, it's like even hard to comprehend how responsive it is. And I started to realize as I studied the out-of-body literature and the traditions working, the cult traditions working in these spaces, the magical traditions, even things like witchcraft and Wicca and so forth, that a lot of what they're doing is in, by working with out, the out-of-body state and mastering it, mastering the different bodies and the different modes of perception and communication. It's bardo training. Yeah. They're learning to navigate the afterlife, you know, modes of experience. Like it's it's absolutely bardo training, you know. And so so this is another place where I all of a sudden was like, my Buddhist references were all of a sudden lining up with what I was understanding was happening in these other spaces, right? And so, so I've, I just keep finding those examples where they're they're not as different as we're it's often made out to be. Um, now, turning towards enactment, you know, so this kind of comes out of, of Wilbur's work, and he talks a lot about enactment that different worldviews will enact different realities, right? And and so one way you can think of oh, go ahead, real quick before I forget. Did is it Wilbur or is it Varela Thompson Rush? I mean, that term did not. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, so, yeah, so no, it's a good point because he he takes the idea from them, but they're they're doing it in a biological environmental context. So so they're they're kind of they restrict the notion of enactment, which is fine to the organism and its environment and how the perceptual systems of the organism are interfacing with the environment environmental signals and cues, and then the, you know, the frog is enacting the fly, right? And, and, and perceives the fly in a way totally different than how we perceive the fly. And so there's a, a, dyn a dynamism there um, that shows kind of a co-arising in effect between the, the organism and the environment, that the organism doesn't just, um, isn't just an object in an environment, that there's a more dynamic interaction between the two. So Wilbur takes that idea and he basically, as he does with a lot of things, he makes it a four quadrant idea, right? And so whereas um, Varela and Monterana are basically, it's kind of an upper right, lower right idea. Wilbur applies the same kind of logic to the upper left subjective experience and, and lower left cultural experience, right? And, and then looks at, you know, like developmental psychology and Foucault's 
analysis of epistemes and cultures and looks at how the same dynamics at play, right? That depending on our worldview, certain things are perceivable in from that worldview. They're not perceivable from another worldview. And so that plays this role within acting phenomena. Certain phenomenon can come into being and be perceived and experienced through a particular worldview that are not available in another worldview. So like, you know, it's not until you get to the postmodern worldview that the importance of minority voices is even perceivable to consciousness. Rational consciousness doesn't really see that. You need more a postmodern pluralistic mode of consciousness to see the importance and necessity of that, right? And so likewise, you know, certain kind of scientific truths are only perceivable at a rational level of consciousness or higher, right? They're not perceivable at the, the magic or mythic levels of consciousness. And so the general idea is that as you transcend and include these different worldviews, more and more of reality becomes available. Um, and, and though, and this is where Wilbur and I kind of differ as, is in the following. He does a great job of talking about epistemological pluralism. We need, we have a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different ways of looking at something, and we need to take into account all those different windows onto an object or situation. Agree with that. He also does a great job of talking about methodological pluralism. In fact, he has a whole concept, integral methodological pluralism, which talks about eight different major academic scientific methodologies that all reveal a different aspect of a phenomenon or a topic or an object. And that if you really want to know the object in its fullness, you need to bring, you know, all eight, ideally, you know, to bear on the study of and understanding of that phenomenon. So any one of those methods is not going to give you the, the whole enchilada, right? So this is another idea of that notion of withdrawal, that the object or the phenomenon is withdrawn, it remains mysterious and elusive, and different methods or approaches can elucidate different facets or aspects of the phenomenon, but no one approach elucidates all of it in its full, you know, complexity and, and profundity, right? So my point to Ken, and, and he and I have had debates about this, is you can't have epistemological pluralism and methodological pluralism without also evoking ontological pluralism. And this is where my article on climate change really, you know, in, in 2010, you know, and looking at climate change as a multiple object and looking at how climate change gets enacted by different um, methodologies. And there's this great book called The Body, The Multiple Body by Anne-Marie Mole. She's a, a Dutch medical anthropologist. And, and she looks at a disease. And this is so great because it's in a medical context. She has this phrase, more than one, less than many. And this is what she's referring to as ontological pluralism. That ontological pluralism isn't just, you know, you open the floodgates and there's just relativity, right? You know, and, and relativism, right? You know, where there's just, you know, the multiple worlds hypothesis where like, you know, every thought or cough equals a whole new universe. It's that there's more than one, right? So we're not dealing with singular objects. There's more than one, but there's less than many. Right. There's some constraints. There's some parameters. There's some referential overlap. Right. Like there's a dynamism that, you know, and it's kind of it's it's fuzzy boundaries. Like you don't always know where one ends and where another begins, but it's it's not just open ended. So she looks at this disease. I'm forgetting the, which disease it was exactly. But she looks at how the different departments on the medical campus investigate and, and in, in effect enact the disease. Right. And because different methods um, will pull out of the phenomenon 
different aspects. And then that gets reified and codified as the object, right? Um, and, and so the, the x-ray, you know, department versus the blood work department versus, you know, the osteoporosis analysis, you know, like that each of these, and she shows how there's kind of this incontrovertibility between these different departments. They don't agree on the object of the disease. They, they're enacting slightly different diseases, but they're calling it the same thing. So there's enough referential overlap where the doctor can treat it, but there's not a singular object because the different methods involved actually play a role within acting a slightly different variation of the phenomenon, right? So there's not, in other words, there's not a, an, an elephant that eight blind men are around touching different parts of the elephant, Right. Those being the different doctors and their methods touching the, the disease as the elephant and just describing a different part of the elephant. We're actually dealing with multiple elephants, you know, slight variations on the elephant. Right. So it's a little more complex. So so that's enactment. Right. Um, or at least an initial kind of foray into enactment. The mutual enactment hypothesis highlights that when we're interacting with non-human intelligences, we are bringing something to the table. Our different, you know, biases and filters, our body, our cognitive um, modes of analysis, you know, our brains, our cultural backgrounds, our linguistic backgrounds, you know, our faulty memory, kind of all the things that filter and distort our perception of reality, right? And, you know, Donald Hoffman does a great job of kind of elucidating uh, a lot of the ways in which we actually don't see reality, right? Um, you know, or, and then, so we bring that to the party these non-human intelligences, be they dakinis or ghosts or extraterrestrials, they're bringing that to the party too. And so there's this mutual enactment. We're enacting them and they're enacting us. And there's this mutual dynamism that's occurring. And there's this great quote by Carl Jung, which I include in the paper, where for a long time, he just kind of thought of UFOs as these um, kind of archetypal projections of um, culture, you know, so that was overly materialistic and it was kind of this impulse to kind of reset the balance and, and bring in the feminine and, and bring in more dynamism. And, and, but then at a certain point, he, he has his dream and he can't tell if he's projecting the UFO or the UFO is projecting him, yeah. right? And it's this very beautiful poetic kind of moment in his writings. And, and what I'm saying is both are happening, right? That, that these are separate, in some sense, separate. I mean, ultimately, we're all one and the same, right? And we can bring in frames of non-duality um, and, and other ways of kind of dissolving self and other. But just as you and I are the same and no different, we we share the same original face. We're also sitting in two different locations, you know, and 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 we have different families and, you know, like, so there, there's sameness and difference. So similarly with a lot of these beings, they have the ones that have their own level of autonomy and ontological distinctness, right? And again, there's a spectrum of that. So I'm not saying every kind of being encountered is entirely autonomous and, and you know, and, you know, ontologically distinct and as full a way as you and I might be. But that th because when you're in the imaginal modes, like one thing that often happens like in the fairy lore, but you also see this in the UFO literature. The beings, the fairy beings that are interacted with, they somehow tap into our, you know, the parts of our brain that have images and memories, and they clothe them themselves based on our perceptions 
and assumptions and preferences. So, so it's like this kind of, you know, it's like cosplay telepathy, right? Where they're tapping into our mind stream and they're using that information to determine their shape and, and their appearance and the clothes they're wearing. So, so that's kind of this mutual enactment, right? So it's like, on the one hand, we could say we're projecting that um, because of certain cultural conditions. I, that is happening, but that doesn't seem to explain it all. It seems like they're also, in some cases, using that to their advantage to show up in ways that we can not be totally freaked out and we can actually have an interaction with them, right? And so, so there's this dynamism at play where we're enacting them, they're enacting us, we're mutually being enacted, and there, and we need to find ways to talk about and explore this dynamism. There's so much here. It's like it's like this is I'm gonna get this is like unbelievable. So here's just a couple again responses to these amazing statements. Oh my gosh! So the minute we start talking about this this inactivism thing, um, two things come to mind. One is exactly um, this notion of of mutual causality, right? right. And I'm thinking in particular, dependent arising. Exactly, exactly. Like that is arguably the core teaching of the Buddha. This is what I talk about. This is the intellectual content of his enlightenment, was yeah. actually seeing the world in this mutually causal way, this, this non-linear or at least bi-directional way at minimum. And I'm thinking yeah. here immediately of, of, the, of the queen of ecology movements, Joanna Macy and her, her seminal book, Mutual Causality in Buddhism and, Ge and General Systems Theory. Yeah. The other thing that's so important here, and again, it shows you, talk about all the different threads that come to play here, when we talk about inactivism, an, an and in particular mutual inactivism here, we start talking about the participatory nature of, of the universe, and immediately we bring in the biggest, most successful theory in the history of science, quantum mechanics, quantum theory. So completely, and I'm not going to say um, giving it, again, the, the primacy to that, okay? There's a default, oh, QM can explain all those. No, no, no. QM is just welcome at this table. But yet what it does is that now we're, we're drawing out, okay, you want some verification for this? Look at how it is that look at the very basis. And the physicists, they may not want to admit it, that fundamentally the universe is participatory. We enact it without our, with our observations. And you mentioned Donald Hoffman's work, the illusion of realism, that, that fundamentally in his work, I, I love his riffs on non-contextual realism, how it is that we actually, again, the moon actually isn't there until you, in a certain way, bring it forth. This ties in very powerfully. We can learn this in our dreamscapes. For instance, when you're in a dream, we, we tend to think without questioning it that there's a dream environment. And then when I turn my head, there's no head in the dream. There's no body in yeah. the dream. You generate it in the act of perceiving it. And so yeah. when you're turning around in a dream, there's no pre-existing dreamscape there. But at the speed of cognitive sight, you yeah. bring forth a dream, a dream universe in the act of looking. Right. And so yeah. ext extrapolate that and, and like the, the room I'm going to go into after we talk in a very yeah. real way will not exist until I go in there and bring it forth. Not in a yeah. solipsistic way, but in an inactive way. So I want to throw that yeah. noodle of quantum mechanics there. And then, oh my gosh, there's so much here. <laughs> the next thing is... Um, what seems to me so critical with all this, uh, Sean, is how do we en enact this view? And what came to my mind was, in a certain real way, we have to engage the classic Indic 
approach of the three wisdom tools. That if we simply mm -hmm. remain, you know, the three, three wisdom tools, as you know, listen, contemplate, meditate, hearing, contemplating, meditating. What we're doing here is incredibly important at the level of hearing and contemplating. But I would argue, along with the wisdom traditions, both Hindu and Buddhist, that you're not really going to enact this view, bring it forth into your being until you engage in that final step of meditation. Why? Because as you drop into your body in this trifold blender, you're, you're purifying concept. You're purifying all the things that, will, that can eventually obscure you from this type of view. And so on one level, in a very real way, I would argue that what you're talking about, I wouldn't say maybe exclusively, can be most formidably enacted through engaging in this classic Indic process of hearing, contemplating, meditating, because then it's when you see, right? That's when it really actually is brought forth. And so the very last thing, and again, I'm throwing all these before I forget them, <laughs> so many noodles here, is again, on another level of the, the fluidity and, and the near enemy of having too much fluidity, at what point is something off limits here? Or in other words, is there anything off limits? How open is this banquet? Yeah. I mean, at what point do you actually shut the door and say, that's effing crazy? Or do you actually even do that? So this kind of pathological openness. How, right. what, what's, what's, what's the classic saying? You know, it's really important to have an open mind. But if your mind is too open, your brain falls out. Right. So at yeah. what point do you run yeah. into that near enemy next thing? So again, sorry for throwing all these things out, but there's so much happening here. Just to review, participatory nature of reality, how this ties into quantum theory, the bidirectionality, just as emphasis on what you said, mutual causality, the praxis behind this. Again, how, how can we take these things when we leave in 45 minutes from our conversation and enact this in our lives and really bring in it? So we just don't leave and say, boy, that was an interesting two hours. And then we're, we throw it off into the dustbin and philosophy and all that kind of thing. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm tossing a lot of stuff out here, bud, but that's just because there's so much happening, okay? Yeah, yeah totally. Um, yeah, so... I really, you know, with ontological generosity and with the mutual enactment hypothesis, I really lean heavily in the direction of a participatory universe and participatory ontologies. And, and that does often bring in, you know, quantum understandings of, of reality. And, you know, I particularly like the work that Karen Berard um, is doing in this space. Her, her book, Meeting the Universe Halfway, you know, is, is amazing. She's teaches at, you know, UC Santa Cruz, I think, in the Conscious Studies program there. And, you know, she has a PhD in, um, in physics, you know, and, and in, in quantum theory, if I remember correctly. And she's basically, you know, one of the leading figures in what's called the new materialisms or the feminist materialism. And, and so she develops the notion of intra-action, mm -hmm. which is basically this idea that there is an individuality that, you know, that there is an interaction, which is the interaction of one, one object with another object, right, or one person with another person, but that there's this interaction that there's this, that the agency of the individual is not located in the individual um, 
it's it's rather located in the interaction and in the interaction between the phenomena. So it's it's a place where she's basically developing this concept of enactment, of mutual enactment, but drawing heavily on the the quantum theories and then situating it in a feminist materialism, which is very interesting, right? And so so there's a lot of you know interesting concepts and distinctions she introduces. So this is a great example of how in exo studies I see a lot of value and drawing on the work of someone like Karen Berard to help us think about subtle beings, right? You know, it's like, you know, most people wouldn't make that move. So like, but it's like there's interesting work she's doing there that I think can be used to explore some of the core issues in exostudies. Um, and, you know, there, the, the, the main mechanism of growth and development that I've come to understand is Wilbur talks about, you know, moving, you know, the, the subject to object shift, right? Of, you know, that, you know, each new worldview is, 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 is differentiating from a particular subject and then taking it as an object, right? So we disidentify with an identity. We, we were subject to it, but now it's an object, right? And we go, oh, that's the part of me that thinks this or does that. When we take different perspectives, right? Uh, you know, one of the main practices that people can walk away with here, you know, it's kind of their, you know, and, and take to work on Monday morning is taking perspectives, seeking perspectives and coordinating perspectives. Cause all of exo studies is just a fancy way of doing that. It's just, and doing it with different disciplines and different viewpoints and different people have had different experiences and taking them seriously, but holding them lightly, which is a big mantra of mine. Um, and, and so there's something about taking perspectives and seeking perspectives and coordinating perspectives that is the developmental driver that drives our consciousness to be more complex and dynamic and capable of holding more complexity, right? So the more we take, seek, and coordinate perspectives, the more our developmental psychology is going to grow. But I realized in conversation with Terry Patton and Roger Walsh many years ago in our Yana book group that the same driver occurs in meditation, right? When you sit down on the cushion, you're taking perspectives on yourself. You're not taking perspectives of other people or other experts or other disciplines. You're taking self as object, right? And you're differentiating and you're going, basically, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me, right? And you just say, peel away the onion until there's nothing left. And then you realize that that, that is you, right? In quotes, you know, it's like, and so the, the subject to object move is crucial for development psychologically or contemplatively. Right. So so either taking perspectives on your own experience or taking perspectives of other people's you know, understanding of situations like both of those subject object moves seems to be what most of our traditions, either in terms of psychological maturity or spiritual awakening, are doing in one way or another. So every meditative practice is essentially in one way or another a process of taking what is subject and making it an object of awareness. And the more that you can take everything and make it an object of awareness and you're not identified with anything, that's liberation, right? And then, so there, there's the same core mechanism of, of development and maturation is occurring vertically and horizontally, interestingly. Um, you know, so, so when it comes down to practices, I often just say take perspectives either on your own experience or talk with other people who have different viewpoints, right? And do your best to be respectful and open and generous ontologically, epistemologically, and, and then try and coordinate all of that inside you. Exo studies is my kind of 
personal passion project of trying to coordinate all these perspectives to help me make sense of my experience, right? And hopefully along the way, I, I produce some distinctions and frameworks that help other people do something along those lines for themselves. And again, you have yet one more time, the openness narrative. I mean, you know, the, the, that fundamental thing that taking perspectives is just degrees, yeah. and degrees of, of, of expansion and opening. And I think doesn't, doesn't Ken also say that on one level, maybe I'm extrapolating this, that this is one way to talk about evolution is basically increased right. um, avenues of, of perspective. We start to yeah. see things from every conceivable point of view as we possibly can. So let, let's, I, I did want to come back to the one question of, um, how open, how open yeah. can we be? Is anything off limits here? I mean, you're, 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 you're on a certain level, you run the risk if you open yourself up to everything, right? And maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah, yeah, open question. Maybe that's a challenge, the invitation. If you open yourself up to everything, does that in itself become problematic? So at, at a certain point, do you, is there a, a, a line in the sand that you draw? Is there a place where you get, hey, wait a second, this really is crazy. Yeah. How, yes. how big can you make it, right? Yeah. I, I have two answers, right? Kind of the, you know, the relative and the absolute. <laughs> the, the relative answer is, yeah, I think, you know, we want to be cautious, you know, too open, like anything, too fluid, you know, probably is going to run into trouble. Um, you know, that said, you know, my orientation and one of the concepts that I'm developing in exercise, which kind of builds on one of Merleau-Ponty's notions um, is wild being, you know, mm -hmm. like being capital B, but wild and wild being is a recognition that being right. The, the, the foundation of reality, you know, the, the, the being out of which all is manifest, that being is inherently wild, that it's multiple, it's withdrawn, it's fluid, it's participatory, it's ontologically weird, it's indeterminate, it's enacted and it's mysterious. So in that sense, I, I don't think there's a limit to the openness. I think that's the point, that reality is just, and it's always evolving and complexifying and, and expanding and withdrawing. And, you know, like, it's like, we're never going to be able to get our hands around it. And, you know, and nor should we want to, like, I mean, that's the beauty of wild being. It's just, it's just, it's, there's just always in a sense more, right? How we learn to navigate that, where we learn to put boundaries for ourselves, for what's useful for where we're at in our own, you know, initiatives or, you know, psychological process, you know, there's some relative, you know, value in kind of figuring out those boundaries and, and not being totally open in a sense. But when I love the, the, the bumper sticker, and I've seen it before, like, you know, if you open your mind up too much, your brains fall out. Well, that's probably the scientific materialist brain falling out. And, and maybe it's a good thing it does fall out, right? You know, so it's like, which brain's falling out, right? <laughs> like, we, we want to get clear on that because we might want it to fall out. Um, you know, so I tend to personally feel like it, there's, there's no end. It's just infinite. It's just, you know, and part of this comes from, from when I was studying Buddhist cosmology as a grad student. There are just all these lists of all these worlds and, you know, tens of thousands and millions, you know, like it's just, and, and of course, they're, they're not really representing actual numbers as much as they're just saying, it's so big, we can't even put a number on it, right? But we're going to try. We're going to put these really big numbers on it, which are more just symbolic of the ineffable, unfolding, evolutionary mystery of all that is, and that's wild being. Beautiful. Being is inherently wild. The two questions come to mind here, then. Um, let's see if these are legitimate. 
what in in this view um, and I, I speak from experience here so let me let me situate this a little bit so 40 50 years ago probably the most dramatic opening experience of my life was over a two-week period in my early 20s um, interestingly enough when I was studying the the new age literature and um, people now will realize just how wigged out I really am all the channel <laughs> material the Seth material yeah. and Casey and I was just really into this kind of stuff you know well, Seth and is I, amazing. Seth is amazing. Even 50 years later, I go back like there's something here. So I started having all these pro dreams of precognition, prodromal dreams. And then my mind just broke open. And for a two-week period, I entered this so-called, again, altered state. No. I've reframed that. I think this is now the altered state. I had right. into the natural <laughs> state. Exactly. This is the altered state. But here's the point, Sean, is for a two-week period, um, it was a magical, mystical experience, kind of nonstop lucidity. I got to the point where I couldn't tell if I was awake or asleep. It was absolutely amazing up until what I thought was an awakening experience. I said, hey, I don't think I'm getting enlightened. I think I'm going crazy because yeah. I started to lose my ontological footing. I didn't yeah. have, and this is important, I didn't have um, the understanding. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about understanding, experience, realization. Right. I had the experience before I had the understanding. And it after two weeks, it started to dislodge me. I, I said, oh my God, I think I'm going crazy here. And so I shut the thing down. I, I basically skied and drank my way back to reality. <laughs> um, but to me, what, what this begs is two questions. What within this parameter that you're describing, what constitutes mental disease then? Right. At what, what point does, does this opening become pathological? Um, and how can we use this as a way? What did Artie Lang, I, I've heard Campbell say this, Artie Lang, the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. At what point can we basically use this in even clinical modalities to help therapists and whatnot appreciate and understand that when somebody comes in and, and starts explaining these things, your view is big enough to say, dude, congratulations, this is awesome. You're opening yeah. your mind to the nature of reality outside of this limited self-sense. So where does mental illness fit into this? And then on the other uh, end of the spectrum, what within this view constitutes enlightenment? What within this view constitutes awakening? Because I think these are intimately connected that we can really use in very practical ways for psychospiritual development. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. You know, and I think this you know point you're making is so important that it's like, yeah, too open, one gets disoriented. And to me, like that's kind of one of the key words here. It's like, you got disoriented. You lost your ontological footing, right? So what would have needed to be in place for you to have that experience and not get disoriented or get disoriented, but then come back to enough kind of a rapprochement dynamic where you kind of get some orientation, then you kind of open back up, you know? And so part of that is because you, likely you were in a culture that has no way of helping you or supporting you in that, right? So when you're there, you're out there by yourself, Right. If we have communities of practice and sangha and, and teachers that understand better the openness and when they find see that we're in that openness, they can give guidance and grounding and support so that we can we can metabolize the openness. And so we we don't stay in a disoriented phase when we stay in a disoriented phase, then dysfunction breakdown, mental disease, like then those can really start to take root and, and people can really lose themselves, right? So I think there's a lot to be said about how do we navigate the openness and not 
stay too long in disorientation, right? And so part of that's building our own resources, our own capacities. Part of that's being in communities that can recognize and support us in that process, right? You know, and part of it's having, you know, structures and, and you know, things also. Um, and, and there's this great book I've been reading called The Philosophy of Madness. Oh, beautiful. And, oh, wow. And, and it's a big book. It was just translated from the Dutch um, a, a year or two ago. And the, the guy went through several bouts of madness, like literally clinically, you know, identified as being mad, insane, um, you know, with d different, you know, diagnoses. And then he went on and got, a, I think, a PhD in philosophy. And he uses his direct experiences to explore literally the philosophy of madness and what's real and not real. So he really gets into kind of some of these issues of disorientation and, and kind of how do you navigate that. And, um, and it's really beautiful because it's like he went on and got the, you know, philosophical training to then and describe and explore and frame his process. So in a sense, it's like he was so disoriented, but then as he came out of that, he went and got uh, frameworks of orientation to kind of then make sense of, of those phases. Um, I think the enlightenment question is such a good one. I don't have any real juicy things to add here other than this is kind of the edge of my thinking because part of where I'm landing in all of this is coming out of a Tibetan Buddhist tradition that understands enlightenment in a particular way. And there's really clear benchmarks, there's clear trajectories, and you kind of know where you're at in that process. And like I said, I was a Buddhist snob for a long time, and I looked at these occult traditions and you know these other traditions as you know being distractions and and not paths of of liberation or freedom, but what I've come to realize are paths of fullness. And I'm I'm curious, like, because I see I see awakening happening in those spaces in some similar and analogous ways to what I see happening in a Tibetan Tibetan Buddhist context. Um, I think the Tibetan Buddhist context has a much more sophisticated and tried and true process and path of awakening. Um, you know, so so there's something there that's really you know dialed in, like they they've really figured it out. You know, they they they've they've test drive you know the the pro product and service to the point where they really have good market reach. Um, the, in these other traditions, they're, they're still kind of fumbling around trying to kind of integrate some of those deeper teachings and insights into the frameworks they're working with. But I still experience and see expressions of what I would call enlightenment. Um, and sometimes they're really similar, sometimes they're really different, right? And this gets back to, you know, a conversation you and I had in another context about almost this notion of total view and, and multiple forms of ultimate realization. And so like, what are we talking about when we talk about enlightenment, you know, and, and like, how can we be more clear about that? Because different traditions, you know, have different ways of understanding that. And some are have more referential overlap than others. Right. So in a sense, I sometimes shift from the word enlightenment to realization. Right. And like, what is the realization we're talking about? What you know, because if, if you work with those three liminal boundaries I talked about, the I boundary, the we boundary, the it boundary, and you're hanging out in the excluded middle in those three categories, you develop a really embodied, awakened sense of non-duality that's really sophisticated, right? And, you know, how it does or doesn't compare with Mahamudra or Dzogchen, you know, high-level teachings, I'm not sure yet. But I think there's enough there that, that invites curiosity and exploration 
reflection and comparison and, and evaluation, right? And so, so this is kind of my edge of like trying to better understand what does realization look like in the path of fullness and how does that similar or different than what realization looks like in the path of freedom? Beautiful, beautiful. And so is it, is it fair just because this is such a lovely notion. I mean, when I'm thinking on path of freedom, not even verses, but path of freedom and right. path of fullness, it's really freedom from and freedom to. Right. On one level, it's it's freedom. The first path of freedom would be, um, you could. I mean, I, my languaging path of openness, path of dereification. Mm. Um, but then that that's not it. Otherwise, you go you fall into spiritual bypassing, all these other traps. And so, what I hear here, that's uh, uh, deeply connected to my irreducible description of um, what Buddhism is. I think completely related to this topic is um, Buddhism is fundamentally a description of reality. And so that's why this stuff is completely resonant with the fundamental principles is, is what I've come to understand Buddhism. It's not a philosophy. It's not a religion. Um, I can't even, because of work of Edmund Thompson, I don't think you can really even say it's a science. Um, it's, it's really a description of reality. The irreducible description of which is the union of luminosity and emptiness. So in a real way, I see these path of freedom, path of fullness is exactly that. The path of freedom is the path of emptiness. Yeah. The path of fullness is the path of luminosity. That it, yeah. that it radiates and it shines. And so therefore, I, I tie this back in because, again, now we're starting to get into some cash value stuff here. Not, not that we haven't been, but the, yeah. the soteriological component here, like there's so much here. We, we can really use these principles as a way in this broad spectrum, um, spectrum way to look at what it means to, 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 to wake up, to become realized, to, to achieve this thing enlightenment. Um, but several things along these lines um, that I want to just ping back at you two things. One is um, the invitation to open, but again, titrating that openness that when you were um, making some interesting comments about my own experience, too, too open too fast can be right. pretty problematic. You know, that's, that's in fact where this, this um, opportunity can transform into an obstacle and, and, and enlightenment turns into madness. So yeah. talk a little bit about titrating this this path um if you can call it that because i think it does it has a potential to be a path um yeah you open too fast the risk of doing that and then before i forget since i'm writing all these notes here i, I mm -hmm. want to talk to you uh, or ask you about we seem to have some parallel paths in terms of both being very 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 deep concerted serious students of tibetan buddhism but in a certain way I've raised my gaze. I still bow with tremendous homage. It's, it's still like, that's the main Kool-Aid I drink, but it's not the only Kool-Aid I drink. It's why I'm such a huge fan of integral theory. So yeah. the question here for you then, in a really constructively critical way, for those of us in the West who are, are um, serious students of Tibetan Buddhism, when we talk about after some of this other stuff, what do you see as blind spots? What do you see? What what are Buddhists not seeing? What what do you see? Again, I can speak from my own experience. Right. When we have this higher perspective, we're we're looking. We we start to see things we haven't seen before. And where where yeah. where does the genius of Buddhism become a trap? Where where are there limitations on this path that a lot of practitioners, me included, can get seriously stuck? Yeah. So just a couple more noodles. Yeah. Great. Yeah, in terms of kind of titrating the openness and like kind of leaning into it at a at a pace and rate that you can metabolize and work constructively with, I think there's a lot to be said about doing your psychological work, yeah. you know, therapy, you know, counseling, 
you know, journaling. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to, to work that edge. Um, in addition, somatic work. Um, I really emphasize the body in a lot of the work I do. And it's like the, if the more we're going to go out and explore these realms, these subtle realms and interact with these various subtle beings and non-human intelligences, the more we need to be embodied. Yeah. Right. And, and not just in our physical body, but our various um, subtle bodies. And so I do a lot of work around emphasizing that and practices that work with that, um, because it's, for me, it's not so much about going out of body. It's just you're going from one body to another body, right? And and so, but how do we go get more in our body at the same time that we're kind of going out of the body, right? So, because I think historically the traditions have kind of been a bit disembodied in their orientation. So I think, you know, and this is why sometimes people will have kundalini openings or, um, you know, subtle energy experiences that ends up blowing out a chakra system or fries their esoteric anatomy that then takes years of work to, to rehabilitate um, the, the nadis and the meridians and just kind of repair those subtle energy channels. <clears throat> and this is where kind of sometimes psychedelics can blow out a chakra um, and create a problem for someone if they're not understanding that that's what's happened. Um, so I think, think, you know, somatic work, psychological work, and then you know, having a teacher and a guide or and maybe a couple, right? You know, people who have traveled the path or a similar path and can kind of say, oh, I don't know, I got to slow down here. Uh, no, you can speed up, right? So I think, you know, having that guidance and those teachers is really key. Um, I, I talk a lot about and think a lot about, about self-gnosis. Like how do, how do we learn to trust ourself and, you know, and listen to our own signals, whether those are soul impulses or somatic or psychological or, you know, um, you know, our higher self or what have you. Um, so I think those are just some basic ways of kind of, you know, going at a pace that works for you. Um, in terms of Buddhist blind spots, yeah, and I, I say all of this with, you know, a lot of love and respect. You know, from where I sit, there's a few things worth mentioning. One is... I think in the West, understandably, we have sanitized Buddhism into kind of a, a secular, um, non-subtle, non-magical mode of, of expression, right? And when I like was in Bhutan and when I've been in India and around Tibet, like, I think we have a particular rational, secular version of Buddhism that gets emphasized in the West um, that in a way doesn't always do a good job of of really representing the full range of Buddhism's um, capacity to explore and, and be in these realms, right? So I think Buddhism has a lot more to say about the subtle realms than we often realize. Like I remember, you know, sitting with some lamas, you know, Western lamas, and they really would psychologize a lot of the subtle realm stuff. And, and I was saying, at first I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But then the more I had those experiences, I was like, I don't know, like, it feels like something else is going on here. So, so I think there's a way in which we're so afraid of the magical and the subtle as Western rational secular Buddhists, you know, who are traumatized by Christianity and have gone to Buddhism to be spiritual but not religious and all of that. It's like, I think there's a way we still need to, we need to rehabilitate the magical and subtle elements of, of Buddhist practice. And I mean, you know, whether you're talking about the six, you know, um, yogas of Naropa or, you know, the, the many of the practices you do around dream yoga. I mean, there's, there's so much there, or even like traveling to the pure lands to get new teachings from bodhisattvas. I mean, or even just Tonkas, like a Tonka having the enlightened energy of that bodhisattva in the Tonka, right? Like these are basic magical practices that, you know, witches and, and occult practitioners 
do in various ways that are understood as magic, right? And so I think there's a way in which we need to rehabilitate the magic of Buddhism, but in a post-rational sense, not a pre-rational sense. Um, so that would be my kind of one thing that I would point to. Yeah, that's really great. Um, blind spots by definition are so insidious and so intractable. And, and um, I mean, in my own path along the journey, the, 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 the way we just get lost, just simply don't see we don't see you you mentioned very briefly and i i I really want to also respect your time you mentioned briefly the uh, the place of psychedelics very interesting that's one of the last things i wanted to talk to you about is is the role of using these agents um ayahuasca psilocybin which is on the ballot here in colorado not only for decriminalization but being legal a little bit about the, the the roles of these agents, and again, I'm thinking very briefly about my friend Chris Beige, 20 year journey. You know his work, amazing. At the end, he stopped because, in a certain way, if I remember properly, his body couldn't tolerate the openness. Too much energy was released, and he was so open, his body couldn't handle the current anymore. Yeah. So maybe just a little bit about that, because this is definitely coming back into the the general atmosphere in a really big way. And I think as a way to help people who are um, psychonauts in those dimensions navigate that territory without getting into trouble. And this is why I emphasize the somatic work and the subtle body work, right? Because to, to hold those energies, we have to build more somatic and, and subtle energy capacity in our system. And even there, there's still limits, right? And, and Chris definitely bumped up against that in, in his journey. Um, as Westerners, we tend to be very disembodied. Like we, we don't eat well, we don't do enough exercise, we, we don't understand our bodies, we don't work with the subtle energies of our bodies much. Um, you know, so so I think a lot can a, a lot of benefit can ha- happen in supporting us to open up more by going more into the body and working with the body in a more conscious way. And especially, and that's why I say like the more you're going to go out and explore as a psychonaut, all of these realms and realities equally go into the body as far out as you're going to go go into the body in some kind of complementary sense you know and that that'll go along as a rule of thumb that'll go long ways with kind of supporting you but yeah you you have to keep checking in and and getting support and and having energy workers check in on kind of what they see like you don't go it alone um, because you can identify problems early on and and then you know do things to mitigate it Um, fantastic well, well uh, Sean, like I, uh, I could talk to you all day. I want to respect your time. Um, as we start to close up here, tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on. My understanding is you're going to be taking this this remarkable seed syllable, this paper, and expanding right. it into at least a book, if not a series of books. I cannot <laughs> urge you to do that too much. It's an amazing contribution. So tell us a little bit of like like what you're working on and then how our audience can um, support you, stay in contact yeah. with you, your website, all that kind of thing. But what's what's currently on the docket? Because you're such yeah. a prolific thinker and writer. Yeah, a number of things. One is, you know, I, a year ago, I launched a new master's and PhD program in integral noetic sciences. And, and within that is a concentration that people can elect to do on anomalous studies, right? So we actually have a, a graduate program. People can get a PhD in anomalous studies where we're really looking at all these issues, as well as many others, right, that, um, you know, are connected to these topics that we've been exploring today. So that's with the California Institute for Human Science. It's accredited. It's based in San Diego, you know, in Encinitas, to be exact. 
We have a small campus, but it's an online program. Um, the program's growing a lot. Um, we had, we've had 10 new students in the last year. There's about 15 that I'm talking with currently that are looking to come in in the next year. And we have two scientific labs. We have a lab of consciousness studies and science with things like EEG machines and heart rate variability machines. And then we have a subtle energy lab where we can measure and track subtle energies. So, so doctoral students can use the lab um, to, and we have the largest Faraday cage on the West Coast um, on campus. So, so there's a lot of interesting opportunities to do research, brain research and somatic research um, in these areas that we've been talking about. I am working on actually three books. Basically, I've kind of been working on them concurrently, so it's um, it's not as bad as it sounds. Um, they're just all like half done, and I'm hoping over the next year to finish all three of them. One's kind of an introduction to some of these topics. One's kind of an advanced text that you know identifies 12 of the core concepts, many of which we've talked about today in exostudies, and has a chapter for each of them. And then the third is more kind of like a new cosmological vision of like, what does a cosmology look like um, that includes everything that we've been talking about? Um, and then I'm launching some some research of, of mega experiencers. So people who experience anomalous realities and multiple categories of anomalous realities. Um, we're doing a global survey, then we're going to do in-depth interviews, and then we're going to do brain um, research and subtle energy research on people who experience, you know, like three plus major categories of anomalous realities on a regular basis and see if we can start to understand some of the brain science behind um, some of this. Very cool. Is there any question that you – I didn't ask any anything that mm. uh, needs to be kind of wrapped up. We covered so many different topics here. But anything yeah. that, that you may, I mean, I want to leave the, the topic of integral ecology because it's such a formidable, rich topic for a different setting, perhaps different session. But anything else along this kind of uh, array of topics that, that uh, you might want to say some final words about or? Yeah, there, there really isn't. I mean, we've touched on so much. I mean, obviously, many of these areas we could just go in more detail. And, and then there's a handful that we didn't get to. But I've been really... I've really enjoyed the range of, of conversations and just your ability to um, pull out key highlights that then kind of set us on a new track of exploration. So um, it's been a delightful exchange and, and a mutual enactment of so many great topics and areas of consideration. And yeah, I just look forward to a future conversation where we can just kind of build on this and, and, and open up even more. Yeah, it's really fun. It, it, I, I've noticed this myself, um, the, the, Dialogue is path. Uh, the, yeah. This kind of yeah. enactment thing is a very legitimate form of exploration and even practice. That <clears throat> as we ping these ideas off, it's like, holy crap, I never thought of that. And sometimes, honestly, when my mind opens enough, I notice, like, well, like, where did that idea come from? Right? I mean, right. Did it come from me? Right, exactly. Come from Manjushri. And yeah. so, even there, there's this very interesting um, narrative openness. But, Sean, I can't thank you too much for the brilliance of your work. You're so generous with your time, and um, rarely do I talk to someone where there's just this amazing mind meld, and it's like, why well, I can totally relate to everything this guy is saying. So big, big bow of gratitude, um, personally, on behalf of my my community, so to speak. Mm. I'm yeah, really, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, really grateful for everything you're doing here. I'm one of these people that will read everything that you put out, and um, let's do it again sometime because there's it's it's such a rich avenue of discourse. I really really appreciate it. So thank you so much for all your time and your work, my friend.
Great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and folks can find me at exostudies.com. And, um, you know, and I'm going to be teaching a, another course in the new year. And also metaintegral.net um, is kind of my consulting business. So those are places online people can connect with what I'm doing. Absolutely. Okay, Sean, until next time, all the best to you, my friend. Thank you. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a big thanks to Sean for taking the time to share his amazing experience. If you enjoy this offering, be sure to check out all the other conversations on the Edge of Mind.